Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, today we're going to talk about pain. There's a lot in the news these days about the opioid epidemic, people using a lot of pain medication, but there are also some new things that are being done in the innovative field of pain research and how we can figure out how to best make people have less discomfort but have greater functional levels for their body. So today we're going to be talking with Dr. Veronica Antoine. She has been at Kaiser Permanente for over a decade, not that I'm aging you at all. Thank you. And she is in the Department of Neuroscience, particularly pain management. So we're going to talk today about what does that mean? How can you manage pain? And how do you know when maybe you're managing it so well you're heading into trouble with some of the pain medicines out there? So welcome to The Body Show, Dr. Veronica. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Now, pain, it hurts. Lots of people have discomfort. What causes pain in the body? Is it a brain signal? Is it a body signal? Is it a combination of both? So it's actually a combination of both, and you hit the nail on the head, and and acute pain, meaning pain that uh, sort of develops immediately and presents uh, as that symptom is a natural sort of response from the body that there is tissue injury or tissue harm. So acute pain is something that we actually are grateful for having, and it's a signal to the brain and to the body to protect that area and allow that area to heal. Chronic pain, however, is an abnormal response in the body. And so the definition of chronic pain is pain that lasts three months or longer. But there are changes that occur physically in the body, in the central nervous system, in the peripheral nervous system, and in the brain, so that chronic pain really becomes an abnormal state, um, whether there's tissue injury remaining or not. So if I broke my ankle... That's going to cause sudden pain. And the body's response is, don't walk on that. Absolutely. Your bone is broken. So the pain response in that situation is protective so that I don't go do something that will make it worse. Absolutely. The idea being that once that bone heals, I should have less discomfort and pain. So the acute phase or the, uh, the sudden onset phase of that pain goes away. Absolutely. Now, if you have chronic pain, that could be if I broke my ankle, but then the bone healed, and now I have this chronic discomfort that I'm sensing, it may not be coming from the bone. It could be coming from my brain. Yes. So how that develops is an extremely complicated process. Um, But some of the things we know that occur in the body is that from that original injury, and typically there's an injury that you can pinpoint, but not always, um, but that those um, nerves that are sensitized from the tissue injury really create signals that go into the spinal cord and up to the brain. And so sort of the natural acute process, that's normal. You get inflammation, you get a response to that. Um, But tissue healing occurs and all of those pain signals dampen down and essentially resolve and you go back to normal. In the chronic pain state, that hypersensitization of the nervous system continues and it never really shuts off. So the nervous system is actually dysfunctional and that's what leads to persistent pain. So if we were to look at, I remember learning in medical school, the image of the brain and where we think different parts of the body are sensed by the brain. So there's a large area where our hands are because we have a lot of nerve endings in the hands. 
We're not as sensitive in the middle of our back, but we may have more sensitivity on the face. So if you looked at, I sort of have this visual image of something they call the homunculus. Yes. And it's this picture from med school where that's where if you have a stroke, for example, why would you not be able to feel or move a certain part of your body? It's because that stroke is in the area of your brain where that body's nerves connect. So in that same type of description, our brain has different areas where all the different body parts may have some sensation. So when we're talking about this ankle break that I don't actually have, but we'll pretend, Mm -hmm. and my bone heals, there's a part of my brain that corresponds to sensations that I would receive from my ankle that go from those peripheral nerves all the way up to my spinal cord, all the way up to the brain. There's a part in the brain that knows, okay, that's coming from the ankle. So that's correct, and and I don't want to simplify this process of chronic pain and and why it develops. And so if you think of what you just described, that's nociception, meaning the transmission of pain nerves from the area of injury through the uh, spinal cord, central nervous system, up to the brain. So that's acute pain. That's acute pain. I broke my ankle today. Correct. Okay. Now, the sort of balancing side of that are what we call descending pathways that go from the brain down through the spinal cord and then out to the periphery. And there are um, chemical reactions that stimulate those pathways when you have acute pain, and they sort of balance that incoming pain or those incoming pain signals. So again, that's nerve transmission. But when people experience chronic pain, it's very complex. So not only do you have that nociceptive pathway, but those um, pain signals that are going in and balanced by the descending pathways. But your brain amplifies or modifies the pain signals. So a person can have the same injury as, you know, another person, but their experience of pain can be very different. And that's based on brain processing. It's based on several things that we actually don't even understand very well. And so um, the actual experience of pain can't truly be measured just from the nociceptive input, just from those pain signals going into the brain. So that does that explain why it's so difficult to treat chronic pain? I mean, it's such a subjective experience. You mentioned one person's experience of pain might be different than someone else's. Therefore, we can't really use a one-size-fits-all type of a treatment. So when we think about how we are treating pain, moving acute pain aside, meaning if we have an injury, we treat that injury, Okay, now let's move into the world of chronic pain because that's an area where you spend pretty much most of your day trying to help treat. Yes. What are some of the common myths or misperceptions about chronic pain that people may still have that you wind up expressing or explaining in your office? First one, not everybody experiences pain the same way. What are some other common myths? Exactly. Um, Another common myth is that there is some harm to my body. So in other words, if that pain exists, then there must be ongoing tissue injury and tissue damage. And in a sense, um, that really is not true in the, in the physical sense of what people really believe that means. So that's another myth. Um, a third myth is that um, medications or opioids in particular are the only type of, quote, pain medication. And I spend a lot of time with my patients educating them on other modalities that can be just as effective, if not more effective, than treating chronic pain. And again, it's because of the nature of chronic pain and the complexity of it. 
So, so what are those modalities? Because everybody wants to know what those are. Sure. So, I mean, if you look at sort of the standard uh, traditional approaches to treating pain, we can kind of break them down into physical modalities or pharmacological modalities and then non-pharmacological modalities. So medications and non-medication therapies. And then in the category of non-medication therapies, we'll look at physical modalities and then um, sort of, I guess we can categorize it as psychoeducational therapies. So if I break that down further, um, looking at medications that can treat pain other than opioids, um, some of the classes of medications that are commonly used by a pain specialist would include anti-seizure medicines, so anti-epileptics. They can actually calm nerve uh, activity, and they can be very effective for, for chronic pain. So we'd be talking about things like Lyrica, Gabapentin, maybe Pamelor, Nortriptyline, things, although that's not technically an anti-seizure medicine. So things that traditionally were developed primarily to treat seizures in, in individuals that we now have found have actually treat nerves in general, seizures being related to nerves, this can also treat chronic pain. Absolutely. So some of those medications out there, we hear a lot about Lyrica and Gabapentin these days. Do you think they're used often enough? That's a great question. I think they still are underutilized. You know, a pain specialist very commonly uses those medications. Um, but outside of the, the realm of pain specialists, I still think it's a very underutilized therapy. And there are uh, studies to support the use of gabapentin and pregabalin, Lyrica, um, for acute pain, postoperative pain, as well as Jingle chronic pain. Jingle pain, right? Yes, we see that. Yes, absolutely. And so in my clinical experience, I have seen a number of patients benefit from those medications. So that's one type of non-opioid. Yes. I kind of slipped in there, that tricyclic. <laughs> yes. That pamelorn or triptyline. How does that actually help with pain? So that, again, a very um, useful, potentially useful class of medications are the antidepressants or is the antidepressant category. And so nortriptyline, amitriptyline, duloxetine, which is Cymbalta, um, antidepressants typically help to treat pain by increasing serotonin and or norepinephrine. And those are the two hormones that are um, two of naturally occurring hormones in your body that work on those descending pathways that I was talking about. So if you have more of those substances around in your central nervous system, you have a bigger influence of dampening pain signals. And so that's how they can treat pain. Directly, indirectly, they, they treat depression, and depression is linked to pain as well, but they are separate analgesics. So what I mean by that is my patients don't have to have depression at all, but those antidepressants can be extremely effective in treating their pain. Well, and that's a key thing to note because sometimes, you know, I know when I first started in practice, I would give someone a prescription for nortriptyline and they would go to the pharmacy, get this big educational sheet about depression, and it wouldn't say anything about chronic pain. And they'd call me and be like, Doc, what are you talking about? Uh, do you think I'm depressed? Because I think I'm okay. And I'm like, no, this is for pain. So sometimes it requires that actual, that extra educational element to explain to someone, yes, this is in a certain category. You may have depression symptoms, and then it would be great to use certain medications. But even if you don't, they may help with the analgesic effect, Absolutely. with the pain effect. Kind of an important thing, I think, to remind people because it's easy to forget that little element. It is. It really is. So what about anti-inflammatory medications? They're not necessarily in the opioid class. They're not anti-seizures. They're not the antidepressants. Where do those come into play? 
So anti-inflammatories are still very useful in the treatment of acute and chronic pain. They can be useful. Um, We know that they're recommended in uh, the recent guidelines for acute low back pain. And in many chronic pain states, there's still a component of inflammation, but they aren't necessarily effective for chronic pain. And again, there doesn't have to be an active tissue injury inflammatory state, so anti-inflammatories may not be effective. Um, One of the things I like to educate my patients on is that uh, to consider a trial of that type of medication, it could be effective, but the risks of anti-inflammatories are really potentially very significant. So one, a lot of them are over the counter, but it's really important for patients to tell their doctors that they're taking them um, because they can interact with other medications uh, as well as be potentially harmful if they're using them every day. Harmful to the kidneys, potential cardiac effects long-term. Yes. Lots of reasons why you want to be careful with those. Absolutely. Any other medication classes that we haven't discussed? So muscle relaxants um, can be very effective in different types of pain states. And one of the things that I'll remind patients of as well is that even though they are in the class of muscle relaxants, so medicines such as baclofen, um, scalaxin, which is metaxalone, cyclobenzaprine, flexoril, um, and there are a number of others. Um, they don't have to necessarily feel cramping or spasms for those medicines to, to be effective. And the reason is they actually work through the nervous system to dampen input, nerve input into the muscle. So, so in fact, one of the most um, sort of painful, severe types of chronic pain syndromes, uh, trigeminal neuralgia or tic de la roe, um, Baclofen is one of the uh, first lines of therapy to treat that, and that is a muscle relaxant, but it's a nerve pain medication. So lots of different ways that we can use a particular group of medications, maybe even a combination of different medicines, to help people with chronic pain. Now, do you think we use too many opioids? I mean, I read some of the statistics and, you know, I went to medical school at the time when really they were teaching pain as the fifth vital sign. You need to make sure you assess someone's pain. You, therefore, in assessing it, need to make sure that you can treat it. And in a lot of cases, that was acute pain, post-surgical pain, or something that had a defined period of time. But when we look at the way in which we are prescribing opioids for chronic pain, are we In your experience, what you see with the people that come to see you, are we prescribing too many opioids? So that's a loaded question. Um, I mean, I'll just throw it out there. I think, yes, we are. Yes. Not everybody, but yes, we are. Yes. So you don't have to take that answer. I'll say, I think we're prescribing too many pain medicines. Do you see that? There you go. (laughs) I will chime in and agree. And that was going to be my answer. I actually... Um, I'm dating myself, but I will tell you that I began my fellowship training at a time where um, there was an emphasis on treating pain and that I was taught, I was part of that teaching, there is no limit to opioids, that you know, opioids are very appropriate for chronic pain and that patients have been suffering um, because of under-treatment of pain and that they're very appropriate. And I've watched... Um, patients be treated with high doses. And um, I look at what's happening in the country now. And yes, we're prescribing too many opioids. I still think they have, and I think everyone should understand they have utility, that um, uh, this phrase, we, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, meaning there are uh, sig- there's significant harmful effects of opioids. And we are seeing that in our country today. And we need to be more um, aware of 
the right patient for potentially for opioid therapy. And so risk assessment is the key in emphasizing now, whereas before, as a, as a community, the healthcare community, we were, we were not uh, assessing risk. Risk of addiction, risk of misuse, risk of diversion, risk of overdose, and risk of death. All right. Well, we're going to talk more about what are some of those risks and how can we safely use medication? How can we do it correctly? We'll be right back after this quick break. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Veronica Antoine from Kaiser Permanente Pain Management Specialist. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are the long-term consequences that we're seeing of some of the things that we were told to take care of and prescribe 10, 20 years ago. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Veronica Antoine. She is a pain management specialist for about 12 and a half years at Kaiser Permanente. And today we're talking about different ways in which we can address pain, whether it be acute pain, which it seems like we actually have a fairly good handle on, or chronic pain, which is where we have a huge learning gap that a lot of folks, myself included, are learning how to more appropriately handle this kind of situation and how we can best help people feel comfortable. Now, I wanted to, we just talked about risk assessment. You know, there are some statistics that I hear, and I want to run those by you, because it was an interesting twist. You know, I often read where they quote that 80% of all heroin addicts started with a prescription for pain medication. And that sounds like a scary statistic. But there's the opposite statistic the percentage of people given opioid pain medicine that actually go on to become addicted to illegal drugs like heroin is nowhere near 80%. It's a much smaller percentage, like 4 or 5%. I mean, when you that doesn't make the headlines. The headlines say 80% of all heroin users started off with prescription pain medicine. And I get that. But not everybody is going to have a problem with opioids. So how do you do the risk assessment in your world when you get a chance to see someone so that you would know this is somebody who chances are is not going to have a problem or this is someone who potentially could, we have to be extra careful. What is that assessment? How can I know? Sure. Um, you're, uh, you made a great point about the statistics and the numbers, and you really have to look at when you hear figures what that figure actually represents um, because it can be very misleading. And so risk assessment should be, now we are aware, it should be done in every single patient when you are considering prescribing an opioid. And so there are certain risk factors, but the bottom line is if you have no risk factors, and I'm going to list some of those risk factors, you're still at risk for becoming addicted. And the risk of any person is approximately 7 to 10%. So one out of you know, 10 to 13, 14 people are going to become addicted. But some of the things that are very important in, in understanding increased risk include a personal history of addiction, so alcohol use or illicit drug use, a personal, uh, or excuse me, family history of addiction, um, smoking is actually a risk factor for opioid addiction. Please don't tell me chocolate addiction. 
<laughs> because then I I'm addiction at risk. to anything. No, addiction to anything. <laughs> I'm at risk. Give me some chocolate. Chocolate's okay. on the low. But I mean, yeah, yeah it's yes. probably on the low end. Mm-hmm. So any previous history, personal history, family history Absolutely. could be a red flag. And I've actually had patients say to me, you know, I want to be really careful because there's a family history in my family of alcoholism or something yes. along those lines. They kind of self-identify yes. as being concerned about it. And when they actually identify as someone that concerned about it, I kind of think, oh, good for you. Right. Does that put them at lower risk by just having that ability to to know that or not really? I don't think it puts them at a lower risk. I think it helps you in assessing what you're going to recommend and how you're going to approach that patient, patient for um, providing therapies. Um, but it is good that they're cognizant of it but it wouldn't change their risk per se. Okay, so self-awareness is mm-hmm. good, not necessarily going to lower their risk overall. Correct. Okay. In addition to some of the other things uh, or other things that I, I would include, um, age under 30 is a potential risk factor for addiction. Whew. Yeah. I'm like 15 years beyond that. I'm safe. <laughs> okay. Um, and then in terms of risk, not necessarily of addiction, but maybe misuse um, or diversion per se are patients that have risky environments. So, um, you know, association with people who have illicit drug use, um, which is actually probably a lot more common than we think. Um, So those are some of the risk factors that that really are important to assess. So in that situation, if you found someone who had those additional risk factors, you might be more likely to prescribe some of the medications we were talking about that are not opioids. Correct. With the idea that the goal is to still achieve pain relief, and we might get to that goal using a different group of modalities than we otherwise might. Because is chronic pain ever well treated with opioids? So potentially. I mean, it could be, yes. And so when I actually educate patients on opioids, the name of my talk is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, And I don't think that we should eliminate or not talk about the potential benefits. But one of the things that I emphasize is if we have a treatment where we begin to see that the risks far outweigh the potential benefits, then we've got to re, um, re-design uh, our approach to, tr- to, to, to using that treatment. And opioids now are at that state. Um, we know from the number of uh, people who have become addicted and, more importantly, overdoses uh, and deaths, that we have to change the way we, we treat chronic pain. Well, and change the combination of medications. Absolutely. Because we look at using opioids and this other group of medicines, benzodiazepines, which, you know, that combination can often lead to some significant increased risk of having problems. Absolutely. In fact, approximately 30% of the deaths that do occur um, are because of that combination, the benzodiazepine and opioid combination. And that's something the Department of Health has put a Senate bill actually passed, I think, 505, which is going to be enacted starting, it was originally January 1, I think it's going to actually take effect July 1 of next year, that's going to require the documentation of the discussion of adverse risks, benefits, that whole concept of developing a plan and actually having someone sign a contract, an opioid contract. Here, if you're going to use these medications, here's the information I've provided to you. Do you understand it? Do we agree together how we're going to manage this? Because there are those other options, and I don't want to shortchange them. Physical therapy, some of the physical modalities. And then also you mentioned some of the psychoeducational modalities. So in addition to using medications, there are some other ways we can treat pain. What are psychoeducational modalities? Physical modalities, okay, I think physical therapy, 
doing other things like TENS units mm-hmm. and or cold packs, heat packs. Yes. You know, I always think of physical as I really should go to the gym. I should be going to the gym every day. <laughs> what are some of the psychoeducational? So that includes a number of things, including cognitive behavioral therapy, which is uh, one of the standard approaches um, to psychological therapies for chronic pain. And it can be extremely effective. And essentially what uh, is done is that we try to, and typically a pain psychologist would, would institute this therapy, but we try to have the patient identify uh, triggers for their pain and then learn behavioral modalities to actually change uh, their pain response. And so there are many studies to actually um, support the use of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, another very useful type of therapy is mindfulness uh, meditation. And I've been very intrigued um, with the utility of mindfulness. And so, you know, I'm going to sort of put it out there that sometimes when people hear mindfulness or relaxation therapy, they go, ah, that's kind of bunk, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they don't really understand the value of that. But uh, what's been intriguing to me is the research that has actually shown um, benefit from those therapies because they physically change the function of your brain. And so when they do... um, imaging of the brain when people are undergoing mindfulness, they can actually see different areas of the brain light up or um, other areas of the brain dampen, which can affect pain transmission. And so it really has a physical effect, even though you're using a psychological type therapy. So it's fascinating. Yoga, um, people are aware of that as a therapy. I guess you would put it under the physical aspect. But there's recent research that shows, again, physical changes in the brain that actually block pain transmission. So these mindful therapies or or, uh, psychological therapies can be extremely effective. And if you go back to in the beginning of our conversation where we talked about the experience of pain, pain is an experience and it's a sum of all those things we talked about, then these uh, therapies that affect the brain and brain transmission and, and sort of modification of pain signals can be extremely effective. So where do you see in your last decade of your career, a little bit longer, you've been helping people manage chronic pain. Where do you see that going in the next 10, 20 years of your career? Are we going to have new medications, new modalities? What do you think is going to blow my mind (laughs) when I look back 20 years from now and go, I had no idea this was going to happen? Where are we headed? Well, I think that there are going to be a number of areas that we begin to develop and explore further to treat chronic pain that are non-opioid therapies, of course, because of the crisis um, that we're, we're experiencing now. And so one of the areas that I think is going to really expand is the use of opioids, but opioids that specifically do not cause the harmful effects, specifically respiratory depression. And so that's a fascinating area of research. I'm I'm wondering what took so long in developing that. But again, we can see why people are focused on, on that area of research. And so in fact, there's one, although several other opioids that are, are being uh, researched now, but one in clinical trials that binds to one of the opioid receptors that can provide analgesia, but has uh, no effect on respiratory uh, status. So um, it's a fascinating drug that's now in clinical trials. So hopefully two, maybe three years from now, that'll be on the market. Um, but that's one area. The other area I see is just focusing on 
receptors and chemical substances that are released, neurotransmitters um, that are released in the central nervous system that do not involve opioids, but that can block pain signals. So that's another area of research. Um, there, there's virtual reality therapy that exists now, but I think that area is going to expand because as we understand more and more about the brain and its function on modifying pain, then I think a lot of our therapies are going to be focused on that and, and aim towards that. And then definitely just the mind-body therapies. Um, it's fascinating. I, um, if I could uh, just add, if we, if we go back to some of the newer research now, when you look at risk factors for patients who have high opioid requirements after surgery or who stay on opioids long the longest. It's not the type of surgery. It's not the surgeon's technique. It's not um, anything else except a psychological or personality trait that is the number one risk factor for having high opioid use after these surgeries. So so I think, wow. the, yeah, I think mind-body therapies are really going to they're going to take off the brain, the last frontier. Mm. All right. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our hawaiipublicradio.org website, or you can go to the HPR app. Our engineer, David Chong, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. See you next week. Mm-hmm.